Steve Fredland is on a mission to teach you how to find happiness. By taking time out to find out who you really are, you will become happier. This episode, you will hear Steve's story about how he found happiness and his work in Rwanda, as well as how to become your happiest self. So I grew up, I was good at math, and this is part of my journey to even discovering happiness is I always kind of did what I should do, right? So I was really good at math in high school. They said, hey, you should go to college. And nobody in my family had ever gone to college before the whole you know history of our family. Like, okay, cool. I'll go to college. And then I was in college. They said, hey, you should become an actuary. And so I did. And, and those are great, obviously great opportunities, but um, I just kind of did it because that's what I should do. I was always good at math. So that is how I entered the workforce, entered, yeah, right after college. Yeah. And when you were an actuary, did you enjoy it at least? Or was it something that you kind of was struggling with? Yeah, I did. For the most part, I did enjoy it. Uh, what I found out later in life is I'm really, man, I'm multi-passionate. I love getting involved in new and creative and innovative things. And so there's certain actuarial roles that are very mundane, if you will. But a lot of actuaries love that if it's their personality. Uh, I always wanted to do something new, something innovative, something creative. So when the job was new, when it was fresh, when I was asked to kind of create products or different things, then I really just loved it. But once it sort of moved to maintenance mode, uh, then I checked out. <laughs> and and that that kind of, I guess it's, it's, it's almost like a, a mountain of difficulty. And then once you're at the top, you look down and go, was it really worth it? Did you kind of get to that point in your job where you found it a bit kind of samey, samey and decide to go out and do something else? Or did you kind of just settle down in that for a little while? I always had to kind of find something else. So either, you know, I was at one company for 17 years and another company for seven years. It wasn't like I was moving companies every year or two. But when I had really good managers that recognized that in me, that I was more of an innovative, creative actuary, they would find roles for me. They'd say, hey, we're going to sell this product. We don't like the risk that's embedded in it. Can you figure out how to manage that risk? Man, that was like, let's go. I loved that. And so when I had managers that were really in tune with who I was and how I was wired, that was great because they'd give me new projects and get it to the point of now it could be managed and then hand it off to somebody else. So in those periods, uh, I was it was very life-giving. But once, once I reached the stage where I felt like I've done all I can do or it was the same routine day in and day out, and again, a lot of actuaries love that. I hated it. Once I got to that point and it felt like there was no, no nothing new coming on the horizon, I checked out and either I would move to a different department division inside of the company or I would start looking externally for something. Yeah. And and eventually that external looking left you away from being an actuary in practice. Where did you go first and what did you do and how did you kind of make that decision? Yeah, that's that's a story in itself for sure. Um, so I moved around inside of the corporate world a bit from pure actuarial work which is really a lot of it's like life insurance pricing kind of things to more of an investment role. So I was doing capital markets hedging. And then I moved to HR, actually human resources, doing workforce analytics. So I was finding new things inside of the corporate world, but I always had an eye on what would it be like to work for myself? Um, you know, and it was a process of getting there. Eventually there was it, was, it was a push and a pull. There was a situation in my last job where uh, <clears throat> I'm still an actuary. I'm still introverted excuse me, <clears throat> I still, you know, I, I like to be in my spreadsheets. I like to do analysis and I need focus. I needed to quiet. I need focus to be able to do that. And I've moved into a global position, which is great, of course, but it was put into like this open office environment where everybody was in the same office together and it was chaos and they all loved it, but I was like miserable. So that was, was sort of the push away from the corporate world where I already was thinking about things. 
But there was a pull. There was a draw to actually see what would it be like to work for myself, to, to be on my natural rhythm of cycle, of schedule, uh, and to take on the clients that I want. So that happened about uh, the end of 2018. And it was a process uh, partially because I'm, I'm willing to take on more risk than my spouse is. Uh, and so there was a process of, of finding the right you know, program, the right uh, process, the right plan, so that we both felt good about me leaving the corporate world because I was getting paid very good money. Uh, you know, and you have a bonus every spring and all of this stuff. And when you start to work for yourself, it's zero, right? I mean, it's actually expenses are more than revenue. Yeah. And if so, you don't work, you don't eat that type of thing. <laughs> that, that's exactly what it is. And it's still that way today, right? You know, you're still, you're still kind of chasing it. And so it was a process of really getting her comfortable, getting myself comfortable to having a plan to say, all right, well, in six months, if this doesn't work, I'll try to find a job again, that kind of piece. And one of the things of that, and that's where everybody's experience is different. For me, we both grew up really poor, my wife and I. And so the one thing we both always wanted was just financial security. We didn't care if we were wealthy. We give away a lot of our money, but we just wanted to not wake up every day just worried about money because we did that our entire childhood, our entire entire adolescence. And we're still worried about, do our parents have enough money? Like, I just don't want to worry about money. And so leaving a corporate job where you just know what you're going to get paid twice a month and benefits and all those things, that was part of the undercurrent of this that we had to get comfortable with, that we knew we had a backup plan in case things go, go wrong. And what did day one of entrepreneurship look like for you, Steve? You've got, you've kind of, you know, you've handed in your notice and you've, you've served out your notice. You get home now and maybe you're at a dining room table or maybe you're a, bit, a couple steps ahead and you've got your home office set up. Did you have clients on the first day or did you have to go actively looking for clients? I did not have any clients the first day at all. Uh, I had not done like, okay, the big transition where you build up to a point where now when you flip the switch, you just turn on the other hose and, and off it goes. It's like, no, here we go. And so it was really, I figured, well, I'm an anal- I, and I didn't really have a plan. Like that was my first problem. I didn't really have like a, I didn't have a personal brand. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a target market. I don't know how to do sales. I still don't really know how to do sales. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, a, I'm an actuary, right? Like somebody give me a problem, I'll solve it. Don't tell me how to pitch this to that or whatever. So um, I didn't have anything. And so I just figured, well, I'll do analytical consulting. That's what I'll do. So I'll look for companies or people that need an actuary or somebody with my skill set. And I started doing some of that. I got a little bit of work, but I just hated it. I'm like, this is, I left this. Like, if I wanted to do this, why don't I just stay there and get a fixed paycheck with benefits and days off and holidays and all of those things. And then I got a call from somebody uh, out in California. I don't even know how they connected. They said, hey, do you do executive coaching? I said, yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. And then I Googled what is executive coaching? Um, and, but you know, that started me down a different path. And I, I did that for a little while with them and they were great, but I'm again, it felt like maintenance to me. Like the first few sessions were awesome. We're digging in, I'm figuring it out. I'm helping them solve problems. And then I'm like, nah, I got to do this every two weeks. Like this kind of sucks, even though it paid the bills. And so I started learning more and more about myself during that process. But that led me down the road, go, ooh, coaching. I kind of like that idea. I like the front end idea. I like the idea of helping people unravel their problems, get clarity on what's really going on, get a strategy for those next steps forward. And then, you know, and then I want to hand it off. And so that's where I started building this model. I call it small, small business, where it's really working with micro businesses to do that. So we I have experts all around the world that can do the actual training, coaching, consulting on an ongoing basis. But man, I love meeting with small business owners and saying, all right, what's really going on and helping them get that deep clarity on who they are, what they want, where they want to go, and then figure out the next steps forward. Because it's 
it's different for everybody. And so to answer your question, like it started with just who will ever, who will pay me for anything? I'm actually a licensed pastor. So I'm like, I did weddings, you know, give me a couple hundred bucks to do a wedding. I'll do a wedding. Like I was just doing anything and everything because I'm not afraid of work, but it just wasn't cohesive. I would do some public speaking. I would talk about my experiences in Rwanda. I'd talk about living the most vibrant life. So I'd go talk for $500 somewhere, which is great, but there was no next steps for that because it wasn't integrated with the rest of my business. Hey, well, if you liked my talk about, you know, vibrant living, then hire me to be your business coach. Like it just, it didn't make sense. And so since that point, I've been trying to figure out, okay, how do I integrate who I really am, what I really want, and then the business so that it's cohesive. Yeah, you, you you spat out so many different types yeah. of things you did there. And I, I, I want to touch on a few of them, but I'm going to have to break them up into separate questions. Rwanda, when did you first go to Rwanda? Why Rwanda? You know, you, you said the fact you're a pastor, so I'm thinking maybe you did something on it, like a, a missionary type of thing. Is that is that kind of right? Yeah, not yes and no, I guess. I was working at a church part-time at the time, and I've been involved in church world the whole time. But but actually, that's a whole story in itself. Um but I got involved in, in Rwanda because I just had a passion for what was going on, the AIDS pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was just like, I don't know why I was so interested in that and wanted to be part of the solution to that. But I just was. I was just drawn to that. There's, you know, there's a million issues in the world. And that was just one that I'm like, this is, I don't know, man. I got to get involved in this. And so year after year, I would give a little bit, little bit of money and kind of read about it, but I never really did anything. And at the same time, I'm, I'm, my wife and I are both fifth generation in the same community in East Central Minnesota. Um, and our community are kind of divisive, right? Like politically, religiously, about the schools, about all kinds of things. It just felt like there's a lot of division and not much unity. And I started strategizing, is there a way to combine those two things? Is there a way to actually help unify our community around something bigger than those day-to-day -day issues and also have some impact in Sub-Saharan Africa? And so I went to a conference about the AIDS pandemic and there was two other gentlemen from my same community there. It wasn't in our town, it was somewhere else. And I'm like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And they were both in the same boat. Like, I feel like I should do something. And so we're like, all right, we gotta start getting together. And so we did. And we spent about actually two years, which we wanted to move forward, but we really needed to be crystal clear on what we wanted to do. And we developed a strategy on how can we unite East Central Minnesota to respond to global poverty? And then who do we partner with to actually do the work in Rwanda? And what is our role in that? So long answer to short question, but we started something called Our Response, which is really about building this community unity and raising money. Uh, we didn't have any paid staff, no overhead, nothing like that. 100% of the money raised was going to go to the impact. And then we partnered with an organization in Rwanda in this one community, because what we wanted to do is just transform, help transform that one community or equip them to transform themselves. So we started taking, I took four trips over there, brought different people over every time, started in 2009 uh, was the first trip. And our role over there was, it was not a missionary thing. It was actually we weren't even doing anything, so to speak. And that bothered all of us at first, because the, the whole point was to go there, to build relationships, to encourage, and to capture the stories that we could then bring back home and the other piece of that is we wanted the, the residents there to have ownership in what they were doing. So versus a bunch of, you know, Minnesota white people coming over and building everything, you know, we wanted them to actually own it because that was the sustainable model. And so we would just go there, capture the stories, you know, build relationships. I love the people of Rwanda. Uh, and I haven't been there since 2015, but um, so that, that was really how it started. It was really a project. Uh, it ended in 2020. It was a 12 year project 
to raise the money to uh, help the people that were over there doing the work on the ground and help them transform their community. And it was unbelievable. Yeah. And I think the thing is with, with kind of life purposes and life missions like that, it's like you said, you just felt like you had to do something. You you didn't know why, you didn't know what, but you actually acted on that, which is something that most people don't do. Most people will think, oh, I should do something about that. And then they never do. So, you know, Steve, well done for actually getting out there the four times that you did. And a 12 year long project is, is you know, no easy feat. So once again, well done. And um, with your with your TED Talks, well, you said one of them was on the topic of finding your happiness. And I'm, I'm inferring here that what you did in Rwanda was part of your your happiness journey. It, it really was. I mean, it's it's been a parallel track, but I learned so much about myself in Rwanda, you know, and I, I learn about how and it's very cliche, right? The, these impoverished areas, they're the happiest people that you meet. And everybody says that, but it's true. Right. And so I was on a mission to figure out why is that? Like, what is really going on there? And how can I capitalize on that for my own life? Like, I want that. Like when I go there and I talk to the people and I see their interactions and their, their sense of community and their sense of belonging, I'm like, I want that. Is that even reproducible here in a, in a place where it's very sort of me centric? Is it possible to do that? So yeah, part of my journey to happiness was learning from the people of Rwanda. Part of it was just the overall program and what I learned from you, you know, uniting the people here in East Central Minnesota. But yeah, um, <laughs> the journey to happiness, that, that's kind of what it's all about. And so I've done two TED Talks. One is live, one is still uh, in production. But the first one I called the peeps in our Jeep. And it really is, uh, it's really about how do we surround ourselves with the right people in our life uh, so that the, our life is, you know, we have this power of shared passion so that our life is more fulfilling. And that is centered on a story from Rwanda and my, my trips there. And then the other one is really about how do we live our most vibrant life? How do we cultivate vibrancy in our life? And that is all about uh, this idea of happiness, which is different for everybody. Yeah. And when did you kind of come to this realization of, oh, I'm happy or my happiness lives over there? Because I feel like most people, maybe even the person listening, isn't happy or can't seem to find their happiness in the world or their slice of happiness in the world. So where did you find it? How did you find it? And also how do you maintain that? Yeah, it's happiness is an ongoing process for sure. There's been seasons up and down and there's, there's really two sources of happiness. One is the things that happen that we have no control over, right? That's the variance of life. It's that's the human experience. We just have to lean into some good things happen to us that we don't deserve and some bad things happen. That's just the human experience, right? I mean, countries invade countries, there's cancer, there's there's pandemics, there's things like that. Some of that we can't control, but some of it we can control. And I think realizing that we can control some of that is the first step. Uh, I guess my first real um, epiphanal moment, I guess, around happiness was about 15 years ago. I was walking across the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis every single day at lunch hour, trying to figure out why I was miserable because my life was so perfect on paper, right? I'm a middle-class white male working for a Fortune 500 company. I'd just been promoted. I had a great relationship with my wife, great relationship with my three kids. Like on paper, everything was perfect, but I was miserable and I couldn't figure out why. And that made me feel even worse because I felt like I had no right to be miserable. So then I felt even worse because who am I going to complain to? Like my mom worked a bunch of jobs just so she could rent out the basement of a house for her and my brother and I to live, right? I'm going to go to my mom and say, man, my life's terrible. I'm miserable. You know what I mean? It didn't make any sense. And so I felt really guilty about that whole thing. And so I started trying to figure out what is going on there. And after about two weeks, I finally called um, a former professor of mine when I went through my MBA program. 
And I said, I don't know who to call. I, I, Cause I didn't really want to complain to my family. I didn't want to get my wife worried. I didn't want to complain to my coworkers because I didn't want them worried that I wasn't going to leave the company. So I said, Paul, what do I do here? And so we met and long story short, he, he went through my strengths finders results. It's a personality test. And I was always kind of anti-personality test. And he said, all right, what are your five strengths? Learner, relator, achiever, strategic, self-assurant. Okay, cool. I'm glad you remember those. Uh, he said, how much did, were you using your strengths before you got this promotion? Like 100%. How much are you using your strengths now that you've, now that you've been promoted? Like hardly at all. He said, the issue is that you are not using your strengths. You're grieving the loss of your strengths. And what that started me down this journey of, of realizing how important it is to have your life aligned to who you really are, like your, your core identity. And it's different for everybody. And I think so many of us, we make decisions based on default, what's always been done. We make decisions based on what we should do. We make decisions based on what we think other people expect of us to do. And we wake up one day and we're living somebody else's life and we're misaligned from who we really are at the core. And so I don't even know what the initial question was, but you know, how do we find happiness? I think it's two pieces. It's one, really getting clear on who you are. And I mean, taking the time to really do it, because I would just sort of gloss over that. Well, here's who I am. No, truly, who are you? What do you really want from your life, your career, your small business, your nonprofit? Like really get crystal clear on that and then be intentional about making decisions that are aligned to that. Even if they fly in the face of what culture would tell you, what society would tell you, what your family or friends would tell you. And if you can start doing that, that's going to start aligning you more and more, having your actual reality align more and more to your core identity. And I believe that's where happiness is found. Because ultimately, if you think about anything that you're happy about, if you just think about anything that you're happy about, it's probably because that thing, the actual reality of that thing is lined up with what you want it to be. And anything you're unhappy about, is when something is not how you want it to be. I mean, it's that simple. And so how do we actually line those things up? Well, we know we have to understand, get clarity on who we who we are, what we want things, how we want things to be, and then be intentional about trying to move toward that. Yeah. And sticking to your your core kind of, you know, strengths and all that kind of stuff, is that what you're describing as the, the, the quote unquote backbone of happiness? That is what's gonna keep you upright and, you know, strong in your happiness. Yeah, that's exactly right. Just like I, I use that analogy, because just like in our physical bodies, our back is our spine, you know, is, is really the, the support system for our body. And so as I've gotten older, I've had started having a few back issues, right? So it's a little bit, oh, that kind of tweaks a little bit here and it's kind of uncomfortable at first. Uh, and then you start becoming irritable, you start losing sleep, you become unhappy, then you go to the chiropractor and they adjust you, right? They realign your back and all of a sudden you're feeling better, your, your posture is better and everything is is there. And I think it's the same way with, with our happiness is, is, yeah, is that spine of happiness, the backbone of happiness is really that our core identity. And if that's aligned with our actual life, that's where we feel good. Um, and so there's, there's different elements of that, but basically, you know, who are you? What do you want? Where do you want to go? How do you want to get there? Who do you want to get there with? When you start to understand those things and then be intentional about making decisions aligned with those things, again, whether that's in your personal life, even in your business, your nonprofit, once you start to align those things, man, you start feeling like you just went to the chiropractor and things just feel better. And that alignment or that realignment with yourself, you took that kind of plunge, you know, about four or five maybe years ago. How has that made you a better person, you know, a better father, a better 
you know, husband, all this kind of stuff. How, how have you seen that, you know, changing that working side of your life? How has that affected your personal life and your, you know, your, your personal relationships? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I would say in general, I've never worked more hours. <laughs> I've never made less money, but I've never been happier. And so that's where it starts. If I'm a happier person, that flows out to everywhere else, right? If I'm, if I'm going to work, I'm driving an hour, I'm commuting, I have a boss that I hate, and I have a job that's sort of miserable because I don't want to be doing that. It's not my skill set. And then I come back. And even if I can leave the, the job at the office, I'm just kind of miserable. Well, now I'm more tired. I'm more irritable. I have that misalignment thing going on. It's like it almost, you know, figuratively, I'm laying on the floor of the living room trying to straighten out my back. Like I don't even really want to interact with people because I'm just I'm miserable. And so just the fact that I'm doing things that I want to do, even if it's a long hours and there's, you know, there's always pieces you don't want to do. I'm just happier. And if I'm happier, I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to want to go for that walk. And my wife says, Hey, let's go for a walk. You know, if I'm miserable, I'm like, God, ah, you know, I, I just want to sit in the chair and eat chips and watch the game because I want to escape. But now because I'm happier and again, it's still a journey, but because I'm happier, I'm engaged more in the rest of my life. I'm more present in the rest of my life because I'm not trying to escape. And I think some personalities are different. I'm a five on the Enneagram, if anybody knows what that is. So that means I withdraw, right? If I'm not happy, I withdraw. Like, I just want to be alone. I don't want to see anybody. I just want to go sulk somewhere or just be by myself. And when I'm in health, when I'm feeling good, when I'm feeling happy, I become a seven, which is much more energetic, kind of life of the party kind of people. And so, you know, that's where my wife says, man, back in the day before some of the career stuff, you were just so happy. Like we'd go somewhere, you'd be like out there and kind of hanging out with everybody and just life of the party in the last 15 years, you just kind of seem grumpy. And even though I'm, I wouldn't be classified as a grumpy person, just, she just knows. And so now she's sensing, okay, Steve's coming back. Steve's coming back. So um, yeah, does that make me a better, doesn't necessarily make me a better husband or a better uh, father just by working for myself, but because I'm happier, I think then the indirect consequence is now I am happier. So the kids are come, come home now they're, now they're graduated, but they come home and I'm going to play, you know, some, some board game with them, or I'll play Oculus, you know, virtual reality with them or whatever it might be. And I'm much more engaged in my life. Yeah. And, and becoming more engaged in your life. Is that something that you plan to kind of delve deeper into? So kind of, you know, I know you're a religious person. So from that aspect, is it like you would do stuff like mindfulness or just kind of, you know, trying to be present in the moment? Like, I'm really curious how you would incorporate th this new kind of way of living your life into, into like a holistic sense. Yeah, I think it's more of the latter, just sort of being present in everything I do. Um, you know, one of the analogies, and again, because I'm a focused problem solving innovator, I'm like, I get, you know, I'm a bulldog when I, when I see a problem, like I'm on that problem, I'm, I'm laser focused there. And I use the analogy about going through a Jeep in the Serengeti where we were, we were looking for a black rhino, right? We had seen all big, all of the big five, except the rhino. We just really wanted to see a rhino. And so we had heard there was a rhino somewhere. We were driving there like crazy. And part of the story that I don't tell that often is, we went past so many amazing things on our in our search for the rhino that I feel like I missed out in, in hindsight. Like there was a pack, we, we've seen elephants, but there's like a pack of elephants coming out of the bush, like right there. And we could have stopped, spent, you know, a minute just watching them. But no, we were so laser focused on the rhino that we just went, man, let's go, 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 go. And, you know, I think we missed out on a lot of things along the way. And I think that's what can happen here. And so what I'm looking to, my part of my happiness is not only 
the quest for the rhino, right? The My focus, because I don't want to lose sight of that. I love problem solving. I'm going to keep going after that. But along the way, who are the people in the Jeep with me? Who are those people that I'm having a relationship with? Enjoy the heck out of them. What are the what are the elephants coming out of the bush? What are those big birds flying over there? Hey, there's a stork. Let's go check it out. Like in just engaging with my life, being present, being aware of what's going on, having the time when we focus, but then the rest of it really engaging. Um, and when as I've started doing that, um, man, it just feels more rich. Like I go to bed at night, not just thinking, "What'd you do all day?" Well, I worked on a problem. Well, that that was okay. But now you know, I go to bed at night. What'd you do tonight? Well. Man, I, I called my daughter for 15 minutes. That was fantastic just to catch up with her on her life. My wife and I went for a walk. You know, and even if I'm thinking the whole time about the problems I have to solve because I can't shut that off, I just feel like my life is richer. Like that was a day well lived. And so that is really, I think, how it manifests itself for me. And part of that, uh, we talked about Rwanda, you know, just learning what I learned from the people of Rwanda because they're so tight knit. They're so close, largely because they just do life together. A lot of it because they have to, right? They they all they would they walk to market together. They they work in the fields together. They sell their eggs together. They go get water together. They cook together. Like all of these things, whether they like it or not, it's all together. And how does that not build these amazing relationships? And so they just they share life, and that's what I'd like to see part of my life become more and more of, and find those right people where I really feel comfortable sharing my life with with them. And in business or in your business, what is the rhino versus the elephants coming out of the bush? If you if you get the analogy that I, I've gone for there. Yeah, I, I would say it's the, the rhino is the, the problem I'm solving. Like even right now, you know, as I'm working on what is my program? What is my what am I actually selling? What is my brand? All this stuff that I never thought about before. I'm trying to solve those problems. So I could spend day after day working on that and talking to people specifically about that. And that's good, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but it's so focused there. But what I do is I look at my calendar and I'm like, okay, here's a, here's a chamber of commerce meeting. Right. And don't even think about the, the sales fact, right? Like you should go there just for networking and sales. Like these are just really good people, but I see that that pop up and I'm like, Oh man, I'm working so hard on this problem. I'm not going to go today. And I do that. I'll do that over and over and over again. I'll skip meetings that are optional. I don't have to be there, but they're great opportunities to connect with people and hear stories and laugh. Uh, and so I think my my rhino is the problem that I'm solving. And the elephants are all that sounds bad. The elephants are all the chamber members <laughs> that are <laughs> that are out there. And I think you know I mentioned laughing too. Like that's one of the elephants too that that I went through a journey. Where I went through like two or three years where I feel like I never really laughed, and I didn't realize it in the moment. And that's such an important part of who I was growing up. I love to laugh. I love to just have fun. I love to prank phone call. I love doing all of that kind of stuff. And I realized I really wasn't laughing. And so then I, I had to become, I became intentional about surrounding myself with people that helped make me laugh, but that's a whole nother story. So that was another elephant is some people's relationships that I was missing, but also some of these characteristics about who I am that just kind of died in my quest for the rhino. And I'm assuming you came a bit a bit disappointed in yourself when you realized that you weren't laughing and you weren't, you know, you weren't really acknowledging the, the quote unquote elephants out the out the bush thing. I wonder if you could tell me more about the time when you realized you, you hadn't laughed for a while and, and what was that moment of realization like and then how did you kind of combat that? Did you just go straight out to a comedy show or something? Yeah, yeah, it was it was terrible. It was terrible, honestly terrible, because I knew I was sort of in the in a period of unhappiness. And I started to assess, well, why do I think I'm unhappy? And when I realized that, I'm like, oh my gosh, like that is, 
so central to who I am. Like I love laughing. I love watching funny shows. And, you know, the shows I started watching were more like Ozark, you know, they're, they're great shows, but they don't make you laugh. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I the first stopped- few episodes of Ozark made me laugh a little bit when he was messing things up, but then it got very serious very quickly. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Good point. The first few are okay. They'll, they'll make you laugh, but you know, great show, but you know, kind of, kind of dark or we watch Yellowstone and all those kind of things that are, that are great, but they don't really make you laugh. Mm. And so, um, yeah, once I realized that I was like, ah, oh, this really sucks. What is, I need, I need this in my life. And I had, I had started working from home some even before the pandemic. So I wasn't listening to the radio because I'd listen to the radio and I love to sing. I'd love to sing in the car. Right. Uh, and that wasn't really laughter, but it brought out that happy emotion in me. And so I'd stopped doing that. Right. I started listening to podcasts and learning more and that kind of thing. And this isn't for everybody, but for me, I needed a laugh. And so it was, it was sort of terrible when I realized that and I asked my wife, I said, does it feel like I haven't been laughing the last few years she's like yeah yeah it feels like you haven't been laughing the last few years like i have to change this and so this is part of the intentionality Uh, i did a few things um one is i reached out to my my wife's cousin's husband who i saw him let's let's go let's go through it again your wife's cousins so quite a far removed person so how did you manage to get that far down the the family tree they were they were on the outside of my jeep right yeah the the peeps in our jeep thing uh so i'd see them maybe three times a year at like family birthday parties that sort of thing because they're my wife's family does these big parties and all this stuff and so i'd see them and every time i had a chance to chat with them and we would just laugh Hmm. it was just so he's so funny and he brought that out of me. And then he thinks I'm funny. And so we just had these, this great chemistry. And I started actually making a list. Who are the people that make me laugh? Like, this is what I did in a physical list. And Chris was one of those people. And so I'm like, I texted him. I said, all right, I got, got his number. I texted him. I said, hey, dude, would you ever want to go out to lunch and just hang out? And uh, he said, you know, in typical Chris fashion, he's like, are you asking me out on a date? <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. And because they didn't, even that exchange just made me laugh. And so, yeah, we just went out, we had lunch, we talked about life, nothing big, nothing, no big conversation, but it felt so good. So I did that. Another thing, my, my son was about to graduate college and he had put himself through college with scholarships and working and that kind of thing. So I thought, well, I should do something for him. So I rented out a laser tag gym for one hour. And part of this was my own secret. I wanted to laugh, right? Because I, I love laser tag and I thought this would be awesome. I knew he'd love it. So we rented a laser tag for an hour and I invited like 16 people, which is what you could invite. And I only invited the people that I thought were hilarious. And I know some people got left off the list. And if they're listening to this, I'm sorry. But I, I chose like my top 16 people that I thought were just the most fun people because that's what I wanted. I wanted just a fun experience. And so I did that, but that was an intentional thing. And if I wasn't on this journey, you know, we might've done an open house form, might've done something else, but I did that intentionally. Uh, and then I did one other thing, which um, I, I did this, uh, well, I did this podcast about the bachelor TV show with me and a bunch of other guys, none of us who'd ever seen the bachelor and we'd never seen it. And so we, we got together, we watched the finale of the bachelor having no history of the bachelor. And then in between uh, segments during the commercials, we would record our thoughts. And it was just so funny. We were laughing so much. So just, you know, th- those are dumb examples, but they're, but it, it brings life to the soul. Yeah. And I, I feel like that is something that is important in life is to do those things that aren't serious, aren't always pushing, you know, oh, I need to make X amount this year and this, that, whatever. Sometimes it's good to just have that relaxed time with, you know, that friend or that family member that 
just you know always leaves you with a good feeling and that and i'm sure the listener and yourself you know as i say that person that gives you the good feeling one person pops to mind and you should text that person right now and be like hey yes. you make me happy you know or you know hey let's meet up because it, i feel like in life it's so easy to get caught up in your own routines or caught up in your own rhythms and and things that to the point where like you said you kind of just box yourself into a corner where oh i shouldn't be unhappy but i am unhappy why is that i'm i'm lacking in in this very somewhat small part of my life but that small part of my life makes a massive impact throughout the rest of my life yeah that is that is so well said that's that's exactly it and it's and it might be different for everybody you know my issue is man i'm serious all the time and i need to laugh a little somebody else's issue might be man, you laugh all the time, but sometimes you just feel like, man, I just need, I need to be a little more serious, what, whatever it is. And that's where, you know, people could listen to this and say, okay, I'm going to call, I'm going to text my Chris. Well, I think you should, if you, if you have that feeling like you should, but don't just do it because I'm doing it. You know, just don't just do it because Sam's doing it really, you know, get introspective and figure out what it is that you need. What do you need more of in your life? Do you need to laugh more? Then yeah, take that. Do you need to sing more? Do you need to write more? Do you need to paint more? Do you need, what, what is it that you just miss doing that gives you life and do it? And in my case, texting him was sort of a, a humbling thing, right? You know, there's that, you know, weird thing. Like, why is he texting me? I don't care. I needed laughter in my life. Just like I have some, I've had some, you know, relationships that are like negative relationships and I've ended those. And that's really difficult to do, but man, I'm so much freer since I've done that. So I think really figuring out that this is your life right? This is, this isn't, this is your life. Like nobody else can live it. And you have more control than you realize. And this is something I just realized in the last five years, I have more control than I realized. I can actually hang out with who I want to. I can actually work where I want and how I want. Like, you know, I mean, it seems so obvious, but it took a while to actually get there that I can actually have more agency in my life than I realize. And when you took that, that agency in your life, was there any parts of it that you maybe had wished had turned out differently to how they did? Yeah, like when I started working for myself, that yeah. part of it, or yeah. in general? So, well, in general, both. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there always are. And I think there, I think progress always has, it's pretty rare that you actually shift gears and everything works out perfect. Like if, if that's your situation, man, that's awesome. But there, there's always things that, that you wish worked out different. Like I wish I had done things differently in terms of how I approached my business. Like right now I'm four years into it and I'm just starting to figure out who am I? What is my brand? What actually is my the right business model for me after scuffling for three or four years trying to figure that out? So I wish I would have you know maybe brought in an expert right away or somebody that has some experience in that and say, all right, help me figure out what, the, what those things are. So I wish that had gone a little bit a little bit differently. Um, I wish I had set up a home office, you know, to, to do some of those things earlier. Uh, I wish I'd reach out to certain people. And I still actually have some of that. There's there people that have offered, Hey, if you ever want to go sing karaoke or karaoke, however, everybody says it today, man, let's, I, I'm, I want to go with you. I want to bring you there. Cause I, I put that out there as something I want to do to laugh, but I still haven't done that. So there, there's sort of, you know, there's great progress, but there's also pieces of this that aren't fully intact yet. But, but yeah, I think, I think you can either take those pieces that aren't quite right and you can just take them to the grave with you and then regret them later or just work on them little by little, figure out what are the biggest things in my life? What are the biggest things I need and take those steps in those directions. But I think clarity on where you want to go is, is so huge. We talked about clarity on who you are, but clarity on what you want to do with your business or your career or your schooling or your relationships. That is so huge because if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. 
That's the the Alice in Wonderland uh, paraphrase version. And is that your your biggest takeaway from from what you deemed as you know kind of something that you wish had turned out differently? Is that you should you should just continue trying, or you should you know you should focus on these things and and give them a go at least. Yeah, I think I think that is a takeaway. I think the clarity piece continues to be. I know you'll hear me talk about that all the time because. Uh, Einstein has a quote that, you know, if he had 60 minutes to solve a problem, he'd spend 55 minutes on the problem, five minutes on the solution. And I believe the same thing. So I got pretty clear on what I, what I wanted to do, but I wish I would have gotten more clear. Like, I wish I would have had somebody come in and really ask me, who really are you? What really do you want? Because what I've discovered is when I, when I took this jump at age 48, I had 48 years or at least 25 years of the working world of just layering on all of these things that I should do, all these things that the world expects of me, what my family expects, what my mom expects, what my, you know, everything. So I had a lot to actually get out from underneath. I thought it'd be pretty easy, but now I'm there where I really understand who, who is Steve? I didn't really know that. It had gotten lost somewhere around the age of probably 18, 17, where now I was living somebody else's life. And again, it was a good life. I was very lucky that it turned out that way, but I didn't really know who I was. I didn't really know what I wanted and so when I had leapt off of the corporate world bridge uh, into working for myself, I just went right into trying to make money. And I didn't really do the hard work of figuring out who I was and what I wanted really, truly out of my life and out of the business. And so I think I scuffled for a long time because I put out messages, I do programs, I do a little work here and there, and nothing was congruent with who I was. And so I, I think that the key message for me is, if you're going to be starting a small business or if you're in a small business, clarity, 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 and do the work. Clarity and doing the work is is definitely a great piece of advice because to be honest, most people will see the end goal and you know they'll they'll think, Cool, I want to make this much. Okay, if I sell this much for that much, you know, they'll do that that lower level analytics, but then they have to think about what happens if someone returns something, you know, all these types of things. Mm-hmm. And that's building the clarity side of things. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, kind of jumping into the many different pots of, of what you've done. Public speaking, you said you're at the very beginning of us talking, you said you're quite an introverted, kind of focused analytical person. So what was public speaking like for you? Was this your first time doing public speaking outside of, you know, say a work presentation or had you? Oh, no, you said you're a pastor. Oh, wait, hang on. Yeah. I, don't even know if my yeah, very... I don't even know if my question's no, it... worth it. But yeah, what was it like no, doing public speaking? It's a great question because I've, I've gotten some real great insights, I think, about myself that have helped other people about this because I've, I've been a speaking, you know, when I was an actuary, I was always speak, the one speaking at conferences right. because, you know, hey, they need an actuary to speak and nobody else will. Steve will do it uh, because in the world of actuaries, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm like Tony Robbins, right? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody that looks at somebody else's shoes is very extroverted. So, you know, I'd speak there and then, yeah, I was a pastor. I'd speak a lot doing that. So I spoke a lot and then I've, I've run and hosted podcasts before too. And I was trying to figure it out because I would tell people I'm very introverted and they'd be shocked by that. And what I, what I realized is part of it's the introversion part, introversion, part of it is my own personality, my own upbringing, uh, where I was sort of afraid to talk like, uh, and so I'm in situations now, if you put me, if we go out, like four of us go out to dinner or something, um, I might not say a word, not because I'm angry, but because I don't force myself in my, my way in, I feel like I need to be given permission to speak which sort of is very weird. And I know and it's something I'm trying to work on that I don't really force myself into conversations. If I have a buddy who just talks to me, I mean, I've gone like on 45 minute drives where I've not said a word 
because I just start, I start timing. It. it becomes this game to me because I'm with somebody who doesn't seem interested in me and they don't ask me a question. They just talk and I sort of active listen. And then that's it. And so I don't force myself into that. My wife's like, what are you crazy? Why don't you do that? I'm like, well, because if they're not interested in me, I mean, if they're not willing to recognize the situation, ask me a question, who cares? Like, I'm not going to force them to listen to what I have to say. So what I found about like even being a podcast guest here is you're giving me permission to tell my story, give me permission to speak. And I found the same thing with theater. I found the same thing with being a, a public speaker, a hosting a podcast. When you give me a platform or I give myself a platform and the rules are sort of clear, you are able to share your insights. You are able to share your thinking. Then, man, I love doing it. I love engaging this kind of conversation. And I know, like, I still have this piece of me that says, man, I've been talking too much. Well, I know I'm the guest. I'm supposed to, but I still have that sort of angst in me because I want it to be mutual. I want us to have a mutual conversation. So having the platform is sort of awkward for me still. But those are the rules of engagement. When I'm a public speaker, I can share my thoughts and not feel guilty about taking up all that time speaking. So it is sort of an interesting dynamic for me. And I think there's other people out there that are probably listening to this that have the same thing where that might be the key for you. If you feel introverted and you feel like, man, I never get a chance to speak up, consider putting yourself in situations where you are given permission to speak, be on a podcast, do a, do a talk at a local chamber, do something like that. Uh, and that's, that's very interesting for people. They're like, you're not an introvert. I'm a total introvert. Like this is great, but afterwards I'll be exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so it, it, it's one of those ones where, as an introverted person, I, I like to think of myself as introverted, but people try to say I'm um, uh, extroverted. But risky, I like to do a lot of things on my own. You know, reading, audio yeah. editing, all this kind of stuff. So it, I'd like a lot of solo activities and conversations like this. Do kind of ultimately they recharge me, even though it's me listening to you speak and, and me asking you very specific tailored questions but they recharge me and then afterwards I go away and I think and I and, you know I, I have this kind of great moment after every one of these interviews that I do where I, I come away with a different perspective and having done nearly over 50 of these now it, mm. it gets to the point where I, I'm quite happy that I haven't fallen into a, a set routine because that's what all the all the guides and you know the kind of uh, advice is make sure you have your set questions and your set routines no point a point b and point c and I'm like no, I'm I'm genuinely going to sit here and talk to this person and, and hopefully they want to talk back and hopefully they want to talk more than me. But, you know, it's, I'm glad that you, you kind of shared that with me, the fact that you like to get involved in these public speaking engagements because it gives you permission to talk. So when you have permission to talk, how do you kind of craft what you're going to say? How do you know what's the right message to give across? Because obviously, you know, church is one thing. You've got the Bible to rely on. You know, you can flip that open to a random page and, and rustle something up. But when it comes to like a TED talk or executive coaching, that's all on you. There, there's no set manual of things. It's all coming from, you know, from Steve. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's been an interesting journey too. How to, how to do speaking because I went for a period where I was so afraid that I wouldn't say what I wanted to say. I would script it. But I wouldn't practice to the point where I just had it all memorized, right? So it was sort of this scripted thing and the words were really good, but I didn't really connect with the audience in a real authentic way. And that's that's what I want. I want authentic connection, you know, like this. I love this. And frankly, if you had sent me a list of here's the 12 questions I'm going to ask you, I might have turned you down uh, because I don't want that. kind. Of, it works for some people, but I don't want that conversation. I Let me just write the answers and you can read them to your listeners. <laughs> like that's not my thing either. But so I went through the scripted thing and then I decided... I'm just not connecting. So I started doing everything just truly organically. Like 
I know I've got 30 or 45 minutes or sometimes 60 minutes to fill. I'm just going to speak from the heart. No slides, no nothing. Just speak from the heart. And you know what? I would really connect with the audience, but it would be a little bit scattered. It wouldn't really flow. And I really wouldn't have like a, here's your key takeaway thing. So it's figuring out how do I find that right solution where I'm giving them something that they can actually take away that's changing their mind, that's transforming them, but where I still connect. And so that's, that's an art, right? That's a practice of public speaking. And so what I've been doing in my keynotes is I have two, really one that I really focus on, this happiness idea, where I write the script and every time I do it, uh, I can adjust a little bit, say what worked, what didn't work. And I've got it memorized and I've got a few slides that really just add value to the audience. And so that's how I approach it. But then what I do is then I, I meet with a meeting planner who's ever putting it together and say, all right, what are the real needs that you your people are facing? So if I just go up there and give a talk about this, you know, oranges, and it's to a bunch of apple farmers, that doesn't, that's not going to help. So it's really taking my core message, those things that I really know, that I love to talk about that I think impact lives that people have said have been impactful, and then adjusting it to the audience so that you're adding value. Because ultimately, it's not about me as a speaker. Like, I'm fine if they don't ever remember my name, but I want them to remember, man, if I could just get the right peeps in my Jeep. You know, or if I can just man, clarity plus intentionality is happiness, or I'm not a ball or all these little, you know, things that I use in the midst of the talk, if I can get them to remember those things, and that changes their life, that's, that's where it's at. I had, I were, I uh, talked to a bank a few years ago, and they, they came back and they just told me I got a message a couple weeks ago said, man, we still talk about the peeps in our Jeep. And I'm like, Oh, that's so life giving to me to be able to do that. So, you know, it, it, it's still an evolving thing. I'm still figuring out exactly how to do it. And Part of it is being true to who I am because part of me is like, oh, public speakers, man, some of those people get like 20, 30, 50 grand to talk. I'm going to be that. And I started going down that road of pursuing that. And of course, I mean, great money, right? Well, who wouldn't like that? But that's not even me. That, that's not me. I'm never going to be a Tony Robbins type of speaker. That's just not who I am. I'm an actuary. I'm analytical. I'm, I have great experiences and great stories I can tell people but I'm never going to be the rah, rah, I'm going to wear a big red hat guy. Like that's just never me. So it's, again, it comes back to who am I really? And how can I do the things that I love to do? I love public speaking. How can I do that in a way that's congruent with me that feels really good? And so for me, like, I want to get up on stage. I want to, man, can I use a stool? Like I want to sit on a stool because that relaxes me. It relaxes the audience. Everybody will tell you, no, you should not use a stool, but if that's who I am, why not? And if that's what people want, that authentic connection, let me do that. So it's it's a process for sure. And you seem to be the master of quotables. We've had the peeps in the <laughs> Jeep kind of analogy, and we've had that described to us. But what is the you are not a ball thing? This is the first time you've mentioned it, and I, I really need to know what that what that you means. You need to know, yeah. yeah. Well, I think part of it is because of how I think. Like I take all these all these abstract ideas and I'm, man, I work on it, work on it, work on it. And I finally, I try to distill it down to something that makes sense to me. That's memorable. And so yeah, I've got to actually got a ball right here. It kind of reminds me, see, um, so you are not a ball is really about living life intentionally. And I think a lot of us live like we are a ball, which means, uh, you know, object in motion tends to stay in motion. Object in rest tends to stay at rest unless there's some outside force. And so like, if I take this ball and I set it down here on my desk, it's going to stay there forever literally it's not going to move unless some external force moves it you know i pick it up i move it you know wind blows something happens the house burns down you know something happens and it moves otherwise it's going to stay there literally forever and i think sometimes we live our lives and we lead and we start our businesses like we're a ball we just kind of sit there waiting and hoping for something to happen and you know i talk about hope is a great 
thing, right? Like, I mean, hope is a powerful thing. It's gotten people through terrible, oppressive situations. And I have hope for the people of Ukraine. I have hope for justice and I have hope for so many things, but hope isn't a strategy, right? I mean, if you're a religious person, you might argue that praying and hope is, is a strategy, but you know, for it's not really a strategy for your business. Like if I, I can just sit there and man, I hope I make more money. Well, I hope you do too, <laughs> but that's not going to, unless, you know, then you're just, it's just variance what happens. Right. And so I think a lot of us live and lead, like we're a ball. Like we just kind of sit there hoping the wind blows and we hope it comes from the West and not from the East and, and those things. And so what, I've, what I tell people is you are not a ball. The good news is you are not a ball. You actually have the agency. You can stop, you can start, you can change directions. You don't have to sit there and wait for some external force. And I think a lot of us, because of our upbringing, because of what we're told by society, we don't realize how much control we have of our own life and of our own business. If you own a small business, it's your business. It's yours. You can make decisions, even contrary to what society might tell you. It is your option. It's your business. Just like it's your life. You can hang out with who you want to. You can say no. You can say yes. You can change directions. You can go from working in a small business to work at a, at a company or vice versa, or leave it all and go for a nonprofit or leave it all and go live in Nepal in the mountains. Like You can do that if you want. And so that's the whole, you are not a ball thing is stop thinking about yourself like a ball, realize that you don't have to just sit there and wait for some external force. Yeah. And all these phrases and kind of things you've done over the many years that you've been, you know, living your life and working and existing in general, what is it that brings you the most joy? Oh man. Experientially, it's my time in Rwanda. I mean, there's just, there's just no question. Um, but I think it, it sounds opposite of who I am and maybe that's why, but like relationships that are just really mutually beneficial. And I know people love me and I love them. Like those, I mean, we had all of our kids home uh, over the, the last week and we actually did a little early birthday thing for me and they were all there. Like they all slept overnight in our house even. And it was just, we were sitting there, they taught me how to play a new game, Settlers of Catan, which some people I'm sure know. I learned how to play it with them. And it's just like, I was looking around, like, and I was just so emotional. And I think for me, the reason why that's so powerful is because I live almost my entire life out of my head, right? We're all wired. Some live out of our gut, some of our head, some of our heart. I live out of my head all the time. And so when something touches my heart, it just moves me in, in crazy ways. And so having them all around the ta table, uh, I watched the movie Coda. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that. And I bawled from like the 12 minute mark on. And so those sorts of things, which my, my wife had zero emotion. Like she's like, eh, I don't know, <laughs> but I loved it. And so I think, I don't even remember the original question, but those are the things that really are powerful in my life. And so the business, the problem solving, helping other people untie knots, helping other people get, you know, achieve their dreams. Like that's all amazing. That's all great. And that gives me a lot of satisfaction. But what truly drives my heart are those relationship things where something just pierces my heart in some way. And I just, I just, uh, you know, succumb to that, I guess. Where can the listeners find you online? Small, small business, uh, small, small business. That's intentional. It's not a typo.com. Uh, that is my coaching consulting business where we really focus on helping entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, micro businesses, mom and pop shops. That's our focus. And so I have my own consulting rates and I've got a team that has uh, a bunch of their own consulting rates. But for people that are micro businesses, like because these are the people I want to help, I have something I call prove it, which is work with me for 10 hours. 
I give you a 90% discount off the rate for those 10 hours. And it's a money back guarantee just to try it. Because what I found is so many small business owners need help, but they don't really believe it's going to provide that value. And then if they finally do reach out to somebody, the rates are so ridiculous. We can't get the help that we want. I experience this all the time where I'm like, man, those people can really help me. I wonder what they cost. I reach out to them and it's like $25,000. I'm like, okay, well, goodbye. Uh, That sucks. Uh, And so I try to give people an opportunity to work, see what it's like to work with an expert. And there's no commitments or anything beyond that. So uh, small, small business, you can find out more about that deal. And then my speaking stuff is more at stevefredland.com. So if you're planning an event, that kind of thing, uh, I'd love to be considered for that. But social media, LinkedIn is really where I'm the most active. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.